I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Players, you're, to me, the best coach I've ever been coached by and the ultimate players coach. When you add that to the school that you're at right now with the opportunity and the program you've built, to me, it's probably the hands-down no-brainer that you're going to go down as one of the greatest coaches in, I think, in NCAA history. Before all that, I was so lucky, and I want to get these numbers straight. When you coached me at Pfeiffer, I have down the numbers that I was 21 years old and you were 24. Is that true? Yeah, it is, Hector. Can you believe that? <laughs> Dude, you've been doing this forever, man. Did you have an idea that you'd be so good at the age of 24 at coaching? No, and, and first off, I appreciate all the kind words, um, but I feel like I owe you and, and a lot of your teammates an, an apology because as I look back on my early years as a coach and I kind of reflect back, I just shake my head at, uh, at how naive I was, how inexperienced I was, uh, all the mistakes I made. Um, and so uh, I, I, I appreciate what you're, you're saying, but I, I would love to have the chance to coach Hector Pinate now that I, I, I you know, I, I know a little, hopefully a little bit more about what I'm doing. I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a much different coach now than I was back then. Coach, when you say you were different attitude wise, your confidence, what, what do you think makes you different? Consistency of approach, something that we preach to our players all the time. I, I, I don't think I was very good with that uh, as a young coach. I, you know, tend to, I, I tend, tended to coach early in my career like I played with a lot of intensity and a lot of emotion. And those two things can tend to make you uneven uh, from a personality standpoint on a day in and day out basis. And, and, and nowadays I take a lot more pride in, 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 a, in a term that we use with our players. We say, be the same guy every day, Hector, be this, just be the same guy every day. And I try to really, um, be that uh, in terms of modeling that type of approach for our players. Coach, you started baseball at the age of eight because of your dad. It wasn't even your choice. So that makes it, to me, the most important relationship for a young athlete is the father-son relationship. Those of us that were lucky or unlucky to have our dad around. How much was he involved in building your winning mindset when you were young to get the love of the sport? Was he as enthusiastic and as intense as you, or is he the opposite? It's so interesting. It's a great question, Hector. I don't know I've ever been asked that. And, and, and my dad is absolutely a role model in my life, um, but not for athletics reasons. He, he was a great athlete in his own right, different sport. He was a track and field guy didn't have a lot of background in baseball. And for that reason, never really tried to coach me a whole lot in the, in the technical side of the game. Uh, he more coached 
uh, attitude and, and work ethic. And, uh, you know, what I'll say is uh, I learned more by watching him than anything that he said to me. He was a, he was a guy that had just an unbelievable, still does, uh, unbelievable work ethic and, you know, never really had to talk about it a whole lot. You saw him live it every single day. And I think, you know, I just learned by, by watching him, you know, he was supportive, but things were different then. And you can probably relate to this too, Hector. You know, uh, my dad worked probably 60 hours a week. And so he didn't have an opportunity to be there at every practice or, or even most of the games that I played. Um, not that he wasn't interested or wanting to be involved, but he, he had, he put food on the table. Right. And, you know, but because of that, I think there's a level of independence that I gained because I had to figure some things out for myself. When I see young players nowadays, you know, the term helicopter parent, it's very applicable because dad is there in everything they do and, and, and over coaching the heck out of these kids in, in, in some um, cases. And it comes from a good place. You know, it comes from a place of wanting to be helpful and wanting to be supportive. But sometimes I think it can be too much. I agree with you so much. Cause I, like I say, coach, I go, no, unless your dad is betting the under against your team, there's no dad that wants their son to suck. We all want everybody to do good, but it's almost like what I've noticed is the best coaches are either professional parents that play the sport and understand how hard it is and are very lenient, or dads like yours that were like, listen, effort, attitude, the things you can control, and forget about elbow up, swing, launch angle, all these things. Coach, in your career, when did you start noticing that you were good at baseball as a player? I really think uh, transitioning into high school, you know, I, I, I had been a multi-sport athlete, had, uh, had, had always played uh, basketball and baseball. Early on, had played soccer and then switched to football. And so every, every year, uh, you know, when you're playing different sport based on the, on the season. But then heading into high school, I had an opportunity to play varsity baseball as a freshman. And it wasn't because I was that advanced. It was just because our team wasn't very good and very deep. And so I was on the varsity by default. But at that point, started to recognize, hey, you know what? This this might be my sport. You know, this might be where I should start really putting more of my energy in terms of training and developing if I want to continue to have a chance to play a sport at a high level. Coach, what position did you play? Yeah. So, you know, when I was younger, I kind of played a little bit of everything, did, did everything except for catch. You know, I never really got behind the dish a lot. Um, but then as I, I got into high school, I was m more of a pitcher. And then, you know, I, whatever position I played was always kind of secondary. Um, I get nervous about guys being POs, pitcher only too early. You know, I see 10 year old kids that are quote unquote POs. I'm like, how, how can you be a pitcher only at 10 years old, man? Swing the bat and go field some ground balls. But um, you know, I played some out the field, played some center field. I played some shortstop uh, through high school and um, even dabbled with it a little bit my freshman year. But I think uh, my future has all was always kind of on the mound. And that's what you did at uh, Davidson? Yeah, I did. I pitched for four years. Yeah. I'll never forget the time we played Davidson College. 
And it wasn't even on the map back then because Steph Curry, I don't think he had just right. he had no, he had, okay yeah, you're right. So we walked into the field and the field just looked so far. And I remember telling you, coach, man, how do people we were walking into the game because we played them preseason at Pfeiffer. And we were walking in and, and I go, Coach, how did anybody ever hit a home run here? And you go, listen, I've given up a lot of home runs here. The ball here travels. And ironically, that day, I think I hit one over the scoreboard. You did. You did. You you, you crushed the ball. You crushed the ball that day. I, I still remember that. I've got a very vivid memory of that. that. You hit that home run to give us a lead. You know, we played that really long uh, kind of fall ball game, you know, where it's just a long continued game. But gave it, hit, a, hit a home run to give us a lead late. And I, I told you the ball jumps there. If anybody knows, I do, because I gave up probably more home runs in that ballpark than just about anybody. Coach, you being a big mindset guy, how was your mindset as a pitcher? We've talked about it, that you're looking at 15 seconds yeah. that you have to get your mind right or to get it wrong. We've talked about to avoid one walk becoming three walks, one run becoming four. As a Davidson pitcher, how was your mindset competing? It was not good, Hector. I mean, I, I really prided myself on being a great competitor, and and I, 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 I still do take a lot of pride in, in the you know, in kind of the toughness and the willpower that I had to to want to win. But I had very little understanding back then of what it meant to have a process, right? What it meant. You're you're referring to what we call that pre-pitch routine, that 15 seconds to get yourself ready to execute the next pitch. And, and we, we really identify three things that go into that 15-second routine. We identify, you know, what it is, the set of things you go through, you know, to get yourself ready, getting the sign, going through your checklist, so to speak. We also identify your breath, right, using the ability to take a deep breath and, and center yourself in the moment and slow your heart rate down. And then we identify the things that make you mindful, right, the Whatever you do to sort of clear that clutter out of your brain and be completely invested in that next pitch. And, you know, back when we played, and maybe you feel this way too, there wasn't a lot of teaching on that side of the game, right? We, I think we sometimes sort of figured that out for ourselves, but there wasn't a real playbook for how to develop your mindset. And gosh, I spend more time on that nowadays than I do just about anything in our day-to-day -day practice setting. Coach, I can't agree with you more. I say baseball, numbers-wise, is the toughest sport, and it's the most undertaught sport. I, as I started working with more athletes of different sports, I'd watch these football players just spend an hour of practice with no ball, just running plays, just running plays, punt defense, this, that. If today you would run a practice, whatever age group, and you spend an hour on bunt defense – the parents will have a heart attack. Like, what's going on? So this is so hard, man. And that's why I know that you're a trendsetter because the perspective, I've always said I'm a perspective coach on everything, man. The failure, the gratitude, that triangle there of success to me is the winning thing of life. And we're going to get into that a little bit. When you got to Pfeiffer that you're like, okay, my playing career is done. How did you make that move? A lot of athletes can't make that move. We're seeing that more and more today with depression, with mental, with identity. Like, who am I now? I've been, I've been 
Chris Pollard, the baseball player, so I was eight years old, and now I'm stuck. How was that transition easier for you? I know you did one year of assistant coaching before you landed Pfeiffer. How was that for you, man? What were you telling yourself? Well, I, I, I wish I could tell you and, and the audience that I handled that really well, but I, I don't know that I did. You know, the one thing that I think um, really steered me towards coaching was that it provided that adrenaline rush that came from competing, right? And so as a, as a competitor, that one-on-one -on -one battle between the pitcher and the hitter, um, those competitive moments, that's, that's what drove me and, 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 and really what I loved about the sport. And I found myself really struggling for that uh, getting out of baseball. And, and, and even early on as an assistant coach, I didn't, I didn't have that. But, but then as a head coach, I feel like I kind of stumbled on that again. And so I have a lot of empathy for athletes as they're transitioning out of their sport. And maybe they're not in a setting that allows them to capture that, that competitive fire that is so important in their lives. And, and I think, you know, if I, knowing what I know now, if, if I were in that position all over again, you know, I would, I would channel it into uh, nutrition. I would channel it into a workout routine. I would uh, channel it into really becoming a, an avid reader, you know, things that I've learned how to do over the years uh, that I know can, can provide direction and, and, and give purpose. And back then, I didn't really understand how to do that. I just happened to stumble on being, hey, you know what, being a head coach and 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 having that pressure of, of needing to win for your job security kind of gave that same adrenaline boost that uh, that being a, a player did. I, I love that. I love that. One of the things that, that I always look at, Coach, when I see people who have reached great success, there's always a big level of adversity growing up. And we're, it's almost like we're almost flawed in a certain way because something happened to us. And in this day and age, the, it's crazy because we love adversity. Majority of parents don't want it for their kids. They want it. It helped them, but they don't want it for their kids. So that helicopter parenting comes into play. I, because of my following, I posted pictures of us together. Kids have reached out to me. Oh, I, I know. They say they know your son. They've spoken great about your son. He's a great kid. He's funny, all this stuff. As a parent, man, how have you been able to reach that? Is it the empathy? Is it your awareness? Because one of the things about being a coach, a baseball coach has a lot of blessings, but time with family is not, a, is not one of the most ones that you guys are awarded. How have you been able to keep that balance, man? So being really intentional about creating an atmosphere where my family is part of the program and the program is part of my family. That's the only way I know to do it, Hector, where you can really strike that balance in the right way. So, you know, having, you know, ha having my family out to the ballpark a lot, you know, we had individuals this past Saturday and my oldest was out shagging baseballs uh, in the BP groups uh, getting some of his baseball work in, you know, having our players over to, to, to my house for dinner, you know, have, bringing my family along for some of our road trips. And I encourage our assistant coaches to do the same because if you try to create two separate worlds, 
I don't think you're going to spend enough time in either to really do it right. That is smart, man. That is so smart. And that's such great advice. You mentioned coaching. It's so hard to find good coaches. You know that because what happens? Every good coach is a manager somewhere. How have you been able? You've been known for getting good staffs, man, guys that have been bought in. What has been your process for getting good guys around you? It's it's really interesting. It's a great question. I don't I don't know that it's the right process, but it's been the process that's worked for me. Um, I really uh, value seeing coaches work in a in a setting where they have to work outside of uh, being around high level players. I think one of the most revealing uh, settings to really assess a coach and 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 how much he enjoys coaching and what his people skills are like, um, put him in little kids camp. <laughs> you know, if you take the coach and you put him around a bunch of eight-year-olds and say, okay, go go teach these guys how to play, you'll find out really quickly who really loves this sport and who likes teaching it and and who's got good people skills. Um, you know, I, I've, I've made a, a habit of hiring coaches who come from programs that don't necessarily have a, a lot of resources, Hector, because I think there's a ton of value in a coach that's learned how to do more with less. Oh, that's so, nice. That's good. Yeah. You know, I, if you look at our staff, um, most uh, one of our coaches played at the Division two level. Uh, one played at the NAI level. A couple of us played at the low Division One level. And all of us as coaches, we got our starts at places like Pfeiffer and Milligan College and Eastern Kentucky and Catawba because you learn at places like that how, number one, you just do whatever it takes to get the job done. You know, when we when you and I were at Pfeiffer, after games, you know, we'd, we'd go uh, collect up all the uniforms and take them in that little laundry room there in, uh, in Myrna Gym, and we'd do the laundry. We'd write the, the press release. Uh, you know, you'd kind of just – you'd stock the concession stand, and it was – Drag just a, the field. Drag the field, Coach. Come on. <laughs> that's right. You just did whatever you had to do to get the job done, and, uh, and I like coaches that have come from that background. How do you instill that in today's kids – when you're at Duke and you have a beautiful turf field, there is no dragging. Then you play at some complex that looks amazing. You have beautiful uniform, Nike this, Nike that. Locker room's beautiful. How do you instill that? It's a great question. It's really hard because it's easy to become entitled in that environment where everything comes very easy to you, you know, when you when you don't have uh, have to go through riding on a 15-passenger van like you and I did to, to get to away games or, or sleeping three or four to a hotel room on the road or, you know, eating fast food for every meal. These guys uh, don't realize how good they have it. And so that's why I think we have to be, you know, really, really intentional about teaching guys what it means to, to not only have gratitude – but to practice gratitude, to actually go through a plan each day on how you find things in your life that you're grateful for. And I also think we have to teach guys how to practice servant leadership, you know, what it means to care more about your teammates and, and look for ways to support your teammates. I'll tell you a quick story on that, Hector. Go for it. So 
this this past Saturday, we're, we're, we're taking batting practice, right? And, uh, and we're doing it in small groups right now because we're in Indies. And we had a couple of pitchers who were sitting, waiting up in the stands for their Indy to start. And one of them was an upperclassman. And as the hitter's batting practice was coming to an end, without anybody saying anything to him, he grabbed his glove, he went out to the outfield, and he started picking up balls. He started shagging balls. And the two freshmen that were there, they were still sitting in the stands. And, and, I, and rather than yell at them or rather than tell them, hey, go pick up baseballs, I just brought them over and, and I said, hey, you know, look out there. Do you see what Rudy's doing right now? And they said, yeah. I said, well, tell me what he's doing. He's always picking up baseballs. Well, well, why is he doing that? Well, because the baseballs need to be picked up. Well, no, that's not really the reason he's doing it. The reason he's doing it is because by picking up baseballs, he's helping out his hitters that just hit so they don't have to go pick up BP after their round is over with. He's doing that to help his teammates, and that's what servant leadership is. And guys have to really be – when you first start doing that, you have to be conscious about it. You have to look around and go, hey, what can I be doing right now to support the people around me? Let me tell you the good things I heard about what you said there, which I love a lot. Number one, the fact, Coach, that there's a saying in Spanish that goes, dogs that bark don't bite. And I love that you grab them over because your typical coach is like, hey, get out there. But the fact that you pull them aside and say, listen, listen, guys, let me, let me let me talk to you for a second. You see what's happening here? And then whatever they see is not what you see. And then you correct them again because <clears throat> living in a life of servant leadership, like you said, in a life, forget about baseball, in a life, you win in whatever arena you want to compete in. You're going to win in the classroom. Why? Because you're going to go up to the teacher, introduce yourself. Now, all of a sudden, you're not a number. You're not just a kid wearing a baseball hoodie in the back of the class. You're going to be a person that's relatable. You're going to connect with that teacher. You're going to help them. Listen, if I can help you with anything, if I can, you want me to pass some, I don't know if you're doing sheets anymore, but if you want me to collect, check, whatever it is, if you want to come to a game, if you listen, if you have a family member that's that's a, that's a fan of baseball, whatever I can do to help, thank you so much. Stuff like that to me is what we need to talk about more coaching society versus hitting home runs and throwing 98 and all this stuff. And we're, and we're not doing that enough. But that's why I think, and that's that's why, listen to me, I want to tell you something. You're the only guy I've ever had to text multiple, you're the only one to get on this show, by the way. Everybody gets one text and you're done. <laughs> but I know in my heart that your message is so important and you're so special in the way that you are, Coach, and you're still so young that the impact you're having in society, I would bet almost that you would have almost every young coach in your area just knocking on your door wanting to learn from you. And if they're not, once I air this, it's going to be the case because there's not too many people like you in the sport, man, because this sport has become kind of the hub for frustrated coaches that wishes they were still playing. They don't know how to do anything else. So they got stuck somewhere and because they stuck it out with time. They got these little positions. So that's why to me, man, you're so special. And I chase, I'll chase you down forever to give you and your voice and your just thoughts, man, awareness and time, because we don't get too many dudes like you so often, man. No, well, I appreciate you saying that. It's an honor to be on, Hector. Uh, 
We talked about helping others. Let's talk about internal focus versus external focus. You preach that a lot. The internal part always gets us in our head, gets us in trouble. The external part, I just struck out. I swung at a pitch I shouldn't have swung. Let me get back into the dugout, get out of my head, and attack. Help my teammate help out. But more importantly in life, just broke up with a girl. You just got fired from a job, all these things. But if I come back and I just, you know what? I'm going to go home and just cut my grass to help to help okay. out. I'm going to take out the garbage. I'm going to cut my neighbor's grass. I'm going to go do something. That takes us out of our head, man. When did you start adapting that philosophy? You know what? It really has been within probably the last uh, five, six, seven years here at Duke that I've started to understand this. You know, I, I, I've preached process for years. Uh, the, the, you know, the ability to develop your routines and, and use your breath. But what I realized, Hector, is, you know, that in and of itself is not enough. Uh, having routines, being mindful is important. Um, but, but those, as you correctly point out, those are internal things. And at some point, you have to be able to take that. And you have to be able to sh shift it externally. O otherwise, uh, you have a locker room that just has a bunch of individual cultures in it. You don't have a collective culture in your locker room. It's not until you truly get outside yourself and you start to put the focus on people around you that you can have a collective culture. And, and that's where and, and, and the other thing that I've seen, Hector, is it's the easiest of the culture pieces to learn. It's the easiest to teach and it's the easiest to learn. I'll, I'll give you this quick story. We were we were doing some youth camps uh, a few weeks ago down at the Durham Bulls Athletic Park, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about these same things that we're talking about this morning, and I turned it back on the kids, and these kids were seven, eight-year-old kids. They're, they're little guys, and I said, you know, hey, you know, tell me your thoughts. What, what are some of the things that, that you feel like? Uh, and this little seven-year-old, he was probably the youngest in the group. He's, he, he, he was really thoughtful about it. He said, Coach, when I strike out, I get so frustrated and I get so mad at myself and I'm walking back to the dugout. The only thing I know to do is hang my bat up and start cheering as loud as I can. And I'm like, this young guy's seven. He's got, he's already got it figured out because he's learned that he can, he can take that internal frustration and turn it into external positivity. If he just shifts his focus to his teammates and I thought, man, if we could get more, not just baseball players, but just more people in general to really see the benefits of, of how this can help you. And so, I, you know, when I see a guy starting to go internal with the frustration, with the, you know, with the me focus, I'll tell him, hey, serving leadership, figure out a way to, to, to turn it towards the people around you. Uh, that's what we should be talking about. All day, all day. I love that. I love that. Coach, you're a trendsetter with, with the yoga. Right before your interview, last week I had Diamond Dallas Page, the wrestler. And he just started a yoga thing. Oh, wow. Online to help people. Not very common in our days to people be doing yoga. Now it's big. How has that helped? I know you have the team involved with it. How has that helped you guys? Well, that... that Honestly, that that's where I first began to understand what it meant to be mindful. And, and I've learned a lot 
through our yoga practice. Uh, you know, it, it started out, uh, I, I thought we, we started this about eight years ago and I, and I thought that, okay, well, this will help our guys with flexibility. You know, uh, baseball players get tight in their hamstrings and tighten their hips and sometimes tighten their shoulders. I thought, okay, this is going to help us be more mobile. It very shortly after I got into it, I realized, you know what, this is going to help us way more from a mental standpoint than it's going to help us from a flexibility standpoint. I, I think that's, that's a great initial way to learn about being mindful, to learn about turning off all the distractivity that's in your brain, you know, whether it's fear of failure, you know, fear of judgment, whether it's your parents, whether it's your girlfriend, whether it's pro scouts, whatever those social media, those things are that, that are constantly distracting you, that are pulling your attention away from being in the moment. You know, yoga was the first thing for me that really said, okay, hey, there's a there's an actual skill that you can learn that can help with some of that. I love that. You mentioned failure. One of the most common questions I get asked coaches, failure, how do I do a failure? How do I do a failure? I've embraced failure. I call myself the biggest failure in the history of Miami baseball by far due to my lack of accomplishments. Social media, I put publicly all my failures, everything, everything, because every time something bad happens to me, coach, I've learned to blame myself first on what I can control. Right. When I'm young, when you're four years old, that's a different story. But as you, we become men, I think And it's, as I've read studies that the adolescent, the adult male brain doesn't really develop to her like 23, 24. We look, a lot of us look like men in high school already, some of us even younger. So there's no empathy for failure. There's no, we almost mock it in society and nobody wants to fail, especially in social media. Everybody wants to put the highlight of their life. You're a big fan of failure. You're a big fan of embracing it. We've talked about it before. How do you educate that man? This is a this to me is one of the biggest challenges that we face in our program, and it's one of the I think the biggest challenges we face in 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 our sport, and and if you want to take it a step further in society, and it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about the helicopter parent, and and I'm a parent. We're we're all guilty of this. We want to see our kids be successful. And so whenever they're about ready to fail, about when they're about ready to fall, what do we do? We swoop in and we try to stop it. We, we, we try to intervene instead of letting it happen and giving them an opportunity to learn from it. So what we get oftentimes here at Duke, we get a, a kid that's never failed. And he, and he hasn't failed for a few reasons. One, because he's talented, right? He's, he's been able to out-talent the people around him in the classroom, on the field, um, but also he's been in a position where oftentimes he hasn't been allowed to fail, whether that's coaches or parents or whomever. And so you get to this level and all of a sudden you're around a group of individuals who are just as good as you, just as, just as strong, just as tall, code, throw just as hard, run just as fast, just as smart. And all of a sudden you're on your own and you, and, and you are failing and there's nobody to jump in and, and, and swoop in and correct it for you. And, and what that leads to is it can lead to some uh, immediate distrust. In other words, Hey, this has never happened before. And now it's happening. 
So there must be something wrong here, right? There must be something wrong with me or there must be something wrong with this coaching staff or this coaching technique or this coaching style because this never used to happen to me. And what we have to really focus on with guys is we have to rewire their brains a little bit in terms of how they look at this. And so, uh, you know, these, this isn't you failing and you going backwards. This is what learning looks like. And we talk a lot with, uh, with guys about having an after action plan, meaning as soon as you experience something from an adversity or a failure standpoint, Rather than going to an emotional place where, where you're, you're, you're fearing other people's judgment or you're thinking something's wrong with you or something wrong with the people around you, just assess the situation and say, okay, what can I learn from this? You know, I, I just gave up a four-pitch walk. I just struck out on three pitches. Uh, rather than get emotional about it, immediately go to the place and say, okay, what can I learn from it? Did, did, I, did I chase a bad pitch? Did I take a pitch that was my pitch to handle? Uh, did I was I was I not on time with my pitch when I got it? You know, and 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 see what you can learn from that experience that you can take to the plate with you the next time. And it takes continual reminders, and it really uh, it, it takes uh, a lot of patience, uh, uh, both on the part of the player and the coach, to say, "Hey, keep doing this, man. I, I know it doesn't feel good right now in the moment, but it's going to help you out in the long run." Coach, let's transition that to when you're recruiting. A lot of your job is recruiting. How many times has it happened that you see a kid that you like and then you see his mental attitude or you see them break down on the field and you're like, ah, oh, no. How, does that, how often does that happen? It, it is really good when it happens. Uh, you, you almost wish as a coach you could uh, see it happen more often. And I tell guys this, we learn a lot more about players when we see them in moments of failure than when we see them in moments of success, right? So when you do have those opportunities to see a kid in in, in one of those moments and you see how they react to it, uh, that's very telling. It's a very telling situation. And ultimately, you know, and you know this, Hector, sometimes as coaches, we have to make really difficult decisions based on small snapshots, right? We have to decide whether we're going to take a kid or not take a kid based on a really small sample size. And so if, if you see a kid in that moment and he handles that moment really poorly, uh, whether it's because he, 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 he can't manage his emotions or whether he plays the blame game and tries to shift the blame to the umpire or his coach, or the field, or what, you know, a lot of times you have to move on from that kid uh, because you know you're not going to get a lot more opportunities to see him, and and therefore, you, you you know, the one the one snapshot you have is not, not a very good one. Coach, I think a great question for you is, what's your message, advice, guidance to the parent that's like, man, I want my kid to go to Duke, right? He's a uh, high school parent, she's a high school parent, kids getting into that high school age. When I when we used to play, we just went to high school and they saw us and good luck. Now it's different. Now Coach Pollard and his team and his staff can see me at a tournament. And I get sometimes parents that are like, well, I don't have money for these tournaments and stuff. So what guidance do you have for parents that want to be seen by a Duke coach? What do you have for them? Well, the first thing we tell 
families is don't get too locked in on on any one location, right? Um, you know, have a ha have a range of of opportunities that uh, that could fit what you're looking for. You know this. Uh, there's great baseball played at all levels, uh, from the junior college level through NAIA and D3, D2 to mid-major to, to high-level Division One, And there's great educational opportunities throughout all those levels as well. So don't, don't pigeonhole yourself by saying, this is, this is the place for me. Um, the, the second piece of that is, if it is – regarding Duke, I would always tell families, focus more on the educational piece, on the academic piece, than on the baseball piece. Uh, because it's not only going to open up more doors at Duke, it's going to open up more doors at other places if it doesn't work out at Duke. Um, and so don't, don't be careful not to put every egg in the baseball basket, right? Um, and then the other thing I tell families, and I always kind of feel a, a, a little bit icky saying this because it sounds self-serving, but it's just the truth. And I think more families need to hear this. If you're interested in a place, it doesn't matter where it is. It can be Duke or Davidson or Stanford or wherever. Go directly to those folks. Put yourself directly in front of that coaching staff meaning email them directly, reach out and contact them directly. Oh, coach, I love that you said this, dude. I'm, I'm telling you, I tell, before you said that, I would tell kids, I go, listen, oh, wait a minute, you want to go to Duke? Okay. I would stand there and knock on the coach's door every single day for a year. I would just say, listen, coach, I, I, now that doesn't guarantee a spot, but I guarantee you if you do that to 100 schools, you won't reach 20 before somebody gives you a shot. But nobody, you, you mean what? Talk to people face to face? Oh, <laughs> think about that concept. Go ahead, coach. Sorry. I agree with you 1000% there. No, you're exactly right, Hector. There is no substitute for putting yourself right in front of that coaching staff and expressing interest. And it, it, it goes so far. And so I always tell kids, whether it's going to their camp or, reaching out and, and scheduling a tour and saying, hey, we're going to be on campus and I want to stop by and introduce myself in person. I, I think that means a lot. And, and you know, I, there are kids who will take the opportunity to email me once every couple of weeks, once a month to update me on their progress. Believe me, it, it doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, I, you know, there are guys that say, man, that, this guy's persistent. You know, he, he, he's got ambition um, he's not going to take no for an answer. So the, absolutely, I think you and I agree on that. Oh, I love it. I love it. Coach, we're fortunate enough, and this is an awesome notch on your belt. It's good for the resume to have a first-round pick this past season, man. Bryce, from the beginning, could, could you tell, were, were, you, were you a believer right from the beginning that he would go that, to have that kind of talent? What made him special? When did you start to see that top first rounder talent in him? Great question. Um, the I'll answer it in two parts. Physically, you would not have 
looked at Bryce Jarvis as a high school player and said, this guy is going to be a first round draft pick. I remember watching Bryce as he was heading into his senior year of high school and he was probably consistently 87, 88 miles an hour. He was, you know, six foot, maybe six one, probably weighed 160 pounds. You know, if you start to think about it, Hector, there's a whole lot of guys around the country that fit that description, right? Uh, 6'1", 88 miles an hour heading into their senior year. Um, but when you spent more time with Bryce, you realized that there was a there was a, a unique competitiveness to him. Uh, there was a drive, an internal drive in him that was special and different. And people talk about the it factor, right? You know, they get the it factor. We're talking about guys like Michael Jordan. Um, Bryce Jarvis has an it factor. And he was truly one of those guys that he really embraced the stage. And you say, when, when, when did you first think, boy, this guy could be a potential first rounder? Um, when we played in the NCAA regional and then super regional a, a, a week later in 2019, you know, Jarvis went head to head in both of those games with first round picks. Uh, one uh, who's already, you know, in professional baseball, one will, uh, who will be uh, next year. So he, he pitched against Manoa uh, in, uh, in, in Morgantown and was just lights out and in a, in a very hostile atmosphere, really embraced that big stage and then turned around and, and, and went head to head with Kumar Rocker a, a week later in nice. Nashville in the, in the championship game of that super regional. And it was at that time that I, I really said, wait a minute, this, this is special. This is different. This is a different level of competitiveness. Um, and, and ultimately the, the, as he continued to work so hard, the physicality caught up with the competitiveness. And that's, nice. why, that's why he is where he is. Nice. Two more questions for you, coach. Number one, what's your favorite type of music? Ah, great question. Um, you know, if I'm riding around and uh, just on the radio, I like country music, uh, probably more so than any. But I, you know, I like that kind of uh, beach music uh, vibe. You know, I'll, I'll listen to some Kenny Chesney and some Jack Johnson. And but I will tell you this: I like all kinds of music. Um, we listen. We try to keep it fresh on the uh, on the uh, sound system during BP. So we we get a, we play a little bit of everything. To, to try to appeal to, to all our gift, different guys' tastes. And, and I, I like music from all different backgrounds. Nice. Coach, relationships, man. This sport, the relationships it builds, not always, I've always noticed, and I don't think we talk about this enough, that if, yes, if you're the third batter, fourth batter, starting pitcher, it's great to have a relationship with the coaches. Everybody loves us, that kind of thing. But it's hard for the guy that didn't get the time, the love, this only because, remember, there's one coach, there's maybe four coaches on a staff, and there's a ton of players. What are we doing so that we can build a relationship with a guy like you? Because if I wouldn't have, listen, <clears throat> I told you a story. It was 3 o'clock one morning on a late night, and since I was, 
going to speak at the ABCA, I started getting their emails. And I saw on the cover of a thing, of that cover of the magazine, in small print, like this big, it said, Chris Pollard wins again at Duke. And I and something hit me at 3 in the morning here in Miami. I go, that can't be Coach Pollard that's now at Duke, right? And I hadn't spoken to him in 20, right. it was 21 years. But if I wouldn't have been a not cool guy or a guy you wouldn't, we I couldn't have been able to reach out to you and be like, Coach, what's up? We're not talking to players enough about the relationship that we have of this platform because we're, I don't know if it's an athlete thing that we're always on to the next, like, okay, now I'm at Duke. Now I got to go to the Yankees or now I got to go to the Cardinals or what do you talk about that with your players at all, man, with your coaches? Like, Hey, listen, we got something special here. Yes. We all want to win at Omaha. We all want super regionals first round, but let's keep the relationship going so that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I can be interviewed by the number one sports guy on social media right now and just be like family. Do you talk about that at all, Coach, or no? Yeah, what, what you're referring to when we talk about the, you know, having the, the – it'd be easier to have the relationship with your number one starter or your number three hole hitter. What, what it really boils down to, I heard this expressed one time. I thought, man, this makes a lot of sense. Those are transactional relationships right meaning what can you do for me then the relationship is based on what what, what we've got to get past that you know that I really do believe this um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care you know that that has to be the foundation of of, of every relationship well, you, you I, I believe players and, and and not just players but people, they, they want to know that you're invested in them before they're ready to, to learn from you. And so, you know, really getting to know guys on their own level and, and appreciating the differences in their personalities and making a commitment like just like this right here to stay in touch after their playing days are over with. And I, I will say this, and I'm getting older, uh, you know, the, the longer I do this, the more that is really it's evident that's what it's about. You know, I mean, you know, you think about our own playing careers. I, I, you know, when we get, when I get together with former teammates, when I get together with my former head coach, we don't talk about wins and losses. You know, we don't talk about this game and, you know, that game. We talk about funny things that happened away from the field. We talk about the bus rides. We talk about, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the time that we shared together. So, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it sounds like a cliche, but it is about the, the relationships. I love it, coach. Listen, I can't thank you enough, man. To me, you're, you're the guy, man. That's why I stay so persistent on you. You're the guy before I let you go. Any question for me or anything? No, I just so proud of you. I uh, keep doing what you're doing. It, it you know, and, 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 and for those of uh, folks that feel like they've lost touch with somebody out there, I think you and I are a great example of how you can kind of rekindle a relationship after 20 years. But I'm so proud of what you're doing and creating awareness about mindset and, and a growth mindset and, and all the things that, are, that, that aren't only baseball skills, but they're life skills. And, uh, and w- want to continue to stay in touch with you. You're the man. Don't go Sun, you town, digging the scene with a gangster lean. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Though you may not.
boom there it is thank you guys so much for subscribing thank you so much for taking the time thank you for sharing and share this whatever coach said that imp that it can help you put it in life don't just put it in sports put it in life don't worry we're going to cover everything here it's your coach anybody you want to see on dm me we're going to try to get them on at coach hp on all social handles forever you keep going hard keep doing your thing i'm going to continue to bring you value every single day if i can love you guys see you soon ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.